0: I would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles uh, to 1 Kings 11, 1 Kings 11, and we're going to be looking together at verses 14 through 26 today, 14 through 26. I had intended to go all the way through 43, but when I realized that that sermon would take over an hour to preach, I had mercy upon uh, the assembled. I've realized that the mind cannot absorb more than the bottom can endure. So I uh, determined that we will will split this into two. It also makes sense the way it's organized uh, by the uh, the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. So let us, uh, though, before we turn to the Word of God, let's seek the face of God. And let's ask for his blessing, knowing that we'll never understand his word or right unless we have his Spirit dwelling within us and illuminating us inwardly. Please join me. Oh, Sovereign Lord, as we read once again... Uh, From 1 Kings, we are about to encounter a tragedy, Lord, a nation that was exalted to the heavens, a king who you knew, who started out his career loving you and being loved. He heard your voice. He saw your promises brought about. And yet, O Lord, in his later years, he allowed his desires to master him, and he went after false gods, his heart was turned aside by his foreign wives, and he built places of worship, even on your holy mountain, for abominable gods, demons really, where infants were sacrificed and perverted people had booths of ritual prostitution. Lord, it's amazing how far Solomon fell And yet we know, Lord, that the roots of of every sin are in our hearts as well. Those seeds are there. We pray, Lord, that as we read, though, you would warn us against allowing them to germinate. And we would see what would happen when a nation forsakes its God. the bad consequences. Help us then, O Lord, to apply these things, to have open ears. Make us attentive now. Remind us this is a message for us. Uh, in our place and in our nation and in our time and help me to bring that home. I can't do it without your help, Lord. I'm a man with feet of clay. I'm a sinner and I need, oh Lord, I need your word to go forth with your power. And I pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. First Kings 11, and I'm going to be reading verses 14 through 43. And I remind you, this is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> Now the Lord raised up an adversary against Solomon, Hadad the Edomite. He was descendant of the king in Edom, for it happened when David was in Edom and Joab, the commander of the army, had gone up to bury the slain after he had killed every male in Edom, because for six months Joab remained there with all Israel until he had cut down every male in Edom, that Hadad fled to go to Egypt. He and certain Edomites of his father's servants with him. Hadad was still a little child. Then they arose from Midian and came to Paran, and they took men with them from Paran and came to Egypt, to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who gave him a house, a portion food for him, and gave him land. And Hadad found great favor in the sight of Pharaoh, so that he gave him as wife, the sister of his own wife, that is, the sister of Queen Tapenis. Then the sister of Tapenis bore him Genubath, his son, whom Tapenis weaned in Pharaoh's house. And Genubbath was in Pharaoh's household among the sons of Pharaoh. So when Hadad heard in Egypt that David rested with his fathers and that Joab, the commander of the army, was dead, Hadad said to Pharaoh, let me depart, that I may go to my own country. And Pharaoh said to him, but what have you lacked with me, that suddenly you seek to go to your own country? So he answered, nothing, but do let me go anyway. And God raised up another adversary against him. Rezon, the son of Eliada, who had fled from his lord Hadadezer, king of Zobah. So he gathered men to him and became captain over a band of raiders when David killed those of Zobah. And they went to Damascus and dwelt there and reigned in Damascus. He was an adversary of Israel all the days of Solomon, besides the trouble that Hadad caused. And he abhorred Israel and reigned over Syria. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand. Forever. When we read about Israel in this particular chapter of Scripture, we need to remember we're talking about an Israel that was really, uh, in one sense, in the sense that nations seem to value, was at their at very height. Israel's economy had never been larger or more robust. Her king was glorious. Foreign monarchs would travel thousands of miles just to hear his wisdom, just to see his kingdom. And for the first time, Israel had merchant shipping. She was the premier arms trader in that particular area, trading weapons to the Hittites and the Egyptians and so on. She had a robust standing army. And for the first time, she had a massive cavalry component in that armor, uh, in, that, uh, uh, in that army. Uh, she had an armored division of her own now, these chariots that were imported by by Solomon and used. The nations that had historically been a thorn in her side were either at peace or subdued. They had been put down. We don't read about the Philistines uh, travailing them any longer. The Canaanites are not a problem. The Moabites are not a problem, and so on. These nations are no longer afflicting them on a regular basis. Everything's fine, right? Well, No. We also remember that Israel is on the cusp of disaster. Israel is about to be split in two. She's about to enter into a protracted period of wars and rebellions and disasters and droughts and famines. And why? Why is this all going to happen? Why are they going to go from being so exalted amongst the nations to suddenly brought low? Is it because of high taxes and forced labor? Well, they existed under Solomon. Well, they didn't help, but that's not why it happened. The Lord made it very clear why disaster was about to be visited upon the nation. He made it clear through his words to Solomon himself. If you back up to the previous section that we read last week and, and verse nine. So the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned from the Lord God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. And had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord had commanded. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, because you have done this and have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father, David. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away the whole kingdom. I will give one tribe to your son. For the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. Now, the Lord had been gracious beyond measure to David. You remember, David was not a perfect king. He was a good king because his heart was after the Lord. But he, too, had allowed women and uh, the finer things of kingship to, to lead him down bad paths. He had... Entered into that terrible sin with the wife of Uriah Bathsheba. And then he had put his faithful mighty man Uriah the Hittite to death. Murdering him in the midst of battle by the hand of of Joab essentially. Who sent him too far towards the walls and he was struck down. But when David was confronted with his sin. What did he do? He repented. He said... When Nathan confronted him with that parable about the man who had taken the lamb from his neighbor instead of one of the many lambs from his own flock and had served it to a guest, he he had said, when it became clear, it was he who was being talked about. You are the man, says Nathan. And David's response was, I have sinned. Nathan confronted David. David repented. Now Solomon is confronted by God himself. Perhaps through the words of Ahijah, perhaps directly, but what happened was weird silence. Solomon apparently did not turn away from the sins that he had entered into, and the Lord had said to him, I am going to tear your kingdom in half. Now, for the sake of your father, David, whom I loved, I'm not going to do it in your time, but it will happen in the time of your son, and we see also a series now of external afflictions also coming upon the nation. Before Israel, there had been this wonderful uh, declaration by Solomon that, you know, now we have a time of peace. The kingdom is expanded, but now war is upon them again. First, we learn about Hadad, a prince of the Edomites. Now, Hadad's name comes from one of the names of Baal, the, the thunder gods, he's a, he's a pagan himself. But the, well, we need to remember the Edomites were relatives of the Israelites. The Edomites, of course, were descendants of Esau, the brother of Jacob, and therefore they were related to the Israelites. But like the two brothers who had a struggle that went back all the way to the, to the womb, you remember Rebekah had asked, why, why, why are they fighting within me if, this, if the pregnancy is okay? Well, there's two nations within your womb, she was told, and they are essentially warring already with one another. And there had constantly been war since their birth between the Israelites and the Edomites. And that, of course, had accelerated when the Israelites entered the promised land. Now, we read that Hadad had been a prince of the Edomites, and he had escaped from this brutal campaign. David had sent Joab into the land, uh, and they had remained there six months attempting to exterminate these troublesome Edomites. Uh, the interesting thing is the the verse that uh, talks about he was there to bury the dead. I think uh, to bury, gone up to bury the slain also could mean that he was searching out. Uh, the people in the caves who were hiding. So the idea was that Joab had attempted to wipe out the entire male population of Edom. Uh, As we see, he didn't succeed entirely, but uh, he'd gotten rid of a lot of them. Now, members of the royal household, therefore, had fled. They had gone to other nations, and eventually they had gone down to Egypt. And there, he had, like a a Joseph of of that period, he had grown in favor with Pharaoh, And this may have been a following Pharaoh who did not like Israel, but it's almost certain that this was also the same Pharaoh who had given uh, initially, at least, when he had gotten into Egypt, a Pharaoh who was actually related by marriage, the marriage of his daughter to Solomon, had harbored this refugee, this enemy of Israel, within his own kingdom. Uh, And eventually, we're going to see him leaving the kingdom of Egypt and going back to Edom. He didn't forget, this man Hadad, what Israel had done to his people. He even named his son Genubath, uh, which means to steal. It comes from a Hebrew root word, uh, Genab. And it was a daily reminder that these Hebrews, these Israelites, had stolen the kingdom from him, from his perspective. So Haddad, what did he do? He probably returned back to his homeland, which was perfectly adapted for guerrilla warfare. Edom was rocky and craggy and so on. It had lots of of places where you could take refuge from a larger force. And he probably conducted uh, guerrilla warfare against the Israelites from that time forward. Uh, So there was war to the south of Israel. They were fighting this this bandit leader, this guerrilla leader in Edom. And It was not chance, we need to remember this, that preserved the life of Hadad and brought him back to Edom to fight against Israel. It was God. The text tells us that explicitly in verse 14. Now the Lord raised up an adversary against Solomon, Hadad the Edomite. He was a descendant of the king in Edom. This was not an oh bad luck or politics sometimes runs this way. That's just the way it happens. Rather, this was a declaration. The Lord did this specifically because of Solomon's apostasy. Political disaster afflicts the nation because of apostasy. Haddad's story also reminds us of of the warnings of God. Before Israel entered into the promised land, The Lord had said not to put their trust in foreign princes, not to put their trust in alliances. They had made an alliance with Egypt, which was settled with the the wrongful marriage of the daughter of Pharaoh to to Solomon. We remember that he should not have been marrying uh, pagan princesses, but he did. But we see how futile alliances with the world are. We need to remember that as well, brothers and sisters. We're not supposed to be unequally yoked in marriage as well. But we can't put our trust in the world and their assurances. I see the the church doing this so often. Sometimes in the political sphere, they'll they'll say, "Okay, let's." Uh, we saw it in legislation that happened recently, where they uh, they said, "Okay, we'll." Uh, We'll enter into a bargain with you, okay? We'll, we'll allow for special privileges, special status uh, for um, homosexuals and people in the LGBTQIA uh, it, so, um, community so that they would have the same protections that were normally accorded to people of, of different ethnicity, different race, and so on. We're going to make that into a protected class as well so that they can't be refused employment and so on. We'll go ahead and we'll do that, but in return, but in return, uh, you won't force us to marry them in our churches. Deal? And the world says, oh yes, deal. (laughs) And we get the same kind of deal that the Indians got again and again and again from the government. Brothers and sisters, there are no protections. There are protections, yes, uh, built into the bill for churches, but there's no protections for businessmen. There's no protections for Christians in their own particular businesses. They're thrown under the, the bus by this particular deal. But yet I see this kind of thing happening again and again. But Solomon, what did he do? He trusted, well, I can, I can assure myself of peace on all sides if I just enter into these marriages, not only with this, only with this princess of Egypt, but also with the surrounding nations. And then I enter into favorable relations with them. I trade chariots with them and so on. And yet we read that Egypt is harboring their enemies. It was not something that they planned to to keep. It was something where the people enter into an agreement and they're already plotting to break that agreement. We read also that the Lord raised up against Solomon another adversary. He has trouble on the south. Now he's got trouble on the north. He raises up an adversary by the name of Rizun who had taken over Damascus. And he had reigned there and made war with Solomon. Incidentally, you'll see again and again that word adversary. In the Hebrew, the word adversary is actually Satan. Uh, it's a reference, obviously, to the power behind the powers that wage war against the people of God. We need to remember that they, too, are following the instructions of a master of a power, the prince of the power of the air, the attacker and the accuser of the brethren. I love Phil Reichen makes a, uh, a good point here. He says, but this story also has spiritual significance in its own right. Reason and this band of rebels were waging guerrilla warfare. In former times, this had been the role that David had occupied. In the days before his royal dynasty, when Saul was still the king of Israel, David had been the leader of a marauding band, but now everything is backward. The house of David is not on the attack, but under attack. The roles are reversed. Solomon is playing Saul to reason David, which is a clear sign that his dynasty has fallen under the judgment of God. God is making all of these things as obvious as possible to his people. He doesn't operate in the dark. It's not at "Oh, Why is this happening? We simply look at the things that we've been doing. We see the signs that he gives, and we, we know something is up. Now, brothers and sisters, I, I need to make this point, and I'll make it as quickly as possible. Sometimes we're, we're tempted to try to read providence. Something terrible happens, and we try to you know, say, this happened because of this, and so on. But when there's a continuous string of unfortunate events, if I can put it that way, there's plague and famine and war and so on, and they just keep happening. At some point, God's people need to start asking, maybe the Lord is not pleased with us. Maybe there's something we're doing. In this case, it should have been absolutely obvious that the apostasy, the very fact that they were, they were sacrificing the infant children of Israel on the same mount that the temple had been bought, uh, built on, that should have been a signal. We're, we're on the wrong path here. Well, what's happening now to Israel is a fulfillment of the Lord's promise. He had said in 2 Samuel 7, 14 to David regarding his the descendants who would be on his throne. He said, I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with a rod of men and the blows of the son of men. And that chastening now is beginning for the iniquity that Solomon had committed. What we see unfolding here is essentially a tragedy, uh, almost Greek tragedy, where we have a king who is who is doing things that are going to cause, ultimately, his downfall. Incidentally, this is apropos of absolutely nothing, but um, <laughs> I learned recently that the, uh, where the word tragedy comes from. I had no idea of its provenance, but apparently it comes from uh, two words. Uh, the first, tragos, which means goat, an ode, song—it's a goat song, <laughs> you know—the the song of a goat. Apparently, goat songs don't go well. That's, uh, they're not pleasing to the ear. They're tragic here. So, unfortunately, Solomon has become the goat, and uh, in the old Charlie Brown sense, not the greatest of all time in modern parlance. So, one of the things that, as we read these words, we need to remember that there was an audience for them in the original setting. Now, when these words were written and given to a people, they weren't written at the time of Solomon, they were written much later than that. They were given to an audience, a Jewish audience, generations later, an audience that had been returned to a devastated promised land. You remember they had been taken into exile, now they had been returned, and they would only be able to see the ruins of their former glory. But what are they being told? They're being told why this happened. Why was it Jerusalem was destroyed? Why were the walls cast down? And why were they being told that? So they could avoid going in the same path. Don't make the mistakes of your ancestors. Don't think you can be a mighty nation. A self-sufficient nation again. If you worship false gods. If you turn your back on God. Avoid sinning the same sins. Avoid Provoking the Lord's wrath. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and your mind and your soul. That is your calling. They're being told that and the evidence of history is being piled up to support it. Now, how had Solomon provoked the wrath of God? Well, we know that God is infinitely worthy of our love naturally. He is our creator. He's the one who brought us into being. But he had a particularly strong relationship with Solomon, didn't he? He made these promises to him. He enriched him. He gave him wisdom beyond the wisdom, ordinary wisdom of men. And yet, despite the fact that God had loved him, God had watched over him, God had provided for him, his heart had turned away from the Lord his God. He had gone after Uh, gold and horses and in particular women and then his foreign wives had turned him towards the worship of these false gods. He had gone after other gods and built temples for them on the temple mount. Now what is the first commandment? The first commandment is you shall have no other gods before me. Now, the Shorter Catechism is particularly helpful here, the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It asks first, which is the first commandment? The first commandment is, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And then in question 48, it asks this, what are we specially taught by these words before me in the first commandment? These words before me in the first commandment teach us that God who seeth all things taketh notice of and is much displeased with the sin of having any other God. God was, to put it mildly, most displeased with Solomon's sin of having other gods and then leading Israel into the worship of these other gods. And what made it even worse? It's bad when people fail to worship the Lord their God who really made them the true God of heaven and earth and they go after false gods or false idols, but it's even worse when they sin not in ignorance, not in darkness, but they sin in knowledge. And perhaps no one has sinned with greater knowledge than Solomon. I mean, consider this. Solomon could probably have explained the first commandment better than anyone here. He could have plumbed its depth, depth rather, and given us insight into it. But yet he had not only broken this commandment and gone on to sin by following other gods, he had added, he had aggravated it by by allowing the abominable worship practices of these other gods. Uh, He... He Remember, he would allow the infant sacrifice of their children to, to gods like Molech uh, or introducing the, the shrine prostitutes, the perverted persons that would have been uh, homosexual shrine prostitutes into the land. Terrible things that the Lord abominates. And yet he had encouraged them, knowing that the Lord had said, if you do these things, my wrath will be upon you wrath, the wrath of God. It's interesting isn't it how, how little time we spend thinking about the wrath of God and I wonder how much time Solomon spent thinking about the wrath of God how in his time perhaps he had as I said that attitude of latitude well the Lord surely he's you know I have all these foreign women I love them I want to please them there are all these nations Pluralism's okay blah 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 you make up all these excuses for yourself you ignore the wrath of God But the wrath of God is a reality. I was reminded of of the depths of the wrath of God in a way that was convicting, and actually it was very scary. I was driving back uh, recently, uh, and I was once again listening Uh, to J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God. If you haven't read Knowing God yet, you really need to. It's one of the best books introducing you to the fundamentals of the Christian faith uh, in a sound way, a deep way as well, that examines it in a wholehearted way. So that's Knowing God. Go read it. You can get to heaven without having read it, yes. But why would you take the chance, as the saying goes? So, in any event, this is what Packer says about wrath. He says, wrath is an old English word defined in my dictionary as deep, intense anger and indignation. Anger is defined as stirring of resentful displeasure and strong antagonism by a sense of injury or insult. Indignation as righteous anger aroused by injustice and baseness. Such is wrath. And wrath, the Bible tells us, is an attribute of God. Is that something that we think about? Wrath is an attribute of God. I mean, we all know he's love, 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 right? And he's holy, holy, holy. But wrath is an attribute that he has as well. Divine wrath, righteous wrath. The modern habit throughout the Christian church is to play the subject down. Those who still believe in the wrath of God, not all do, say little about it. Perhaps they do not think much about it. To an age which has unashamedly sold itself to the gods of greed, pride, sex, and self-will, the church mumbles on about God's kindness but says virtually nothing about his judgment. How often during the past year did you hear, or if you were a minister, did you preach a sermon on the wrath of God? The fact is that the subject of divine wrath has become taboo in modern society and Christians by and large have accepted the taboo and conditioned themselves never to raise the matter. We may well ask whether this is as it should be for the Bible behaves very differently. One cannot imagine that talk of divine judgment was ever very popular, yet the biblical writers engage in it constantly. One of the most striking things about the Bible is the vigor with which both testaments, that's new and old, emphasize the reality and terror of God's wrath A study, says A.W. Pink, of the concordance will show that there are more references in scripture to the anger, fury, and wrath of God than there are to his love and tenderness. The Bible labors the point that just as God is good to those who trust him, so he is terrible to those who do not. It is an awful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We are warned in Hebrews, for instance. We seem to have forgotten not just as individuals, but as nations, that as Providence 1434 puts it, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Now, what has happened is that we as a people, we as nations, particularly here in the West, have followed Solomon's example. We have apostatized. We have gone after false gods. We have made pleasure Sex, we have made uh, all sorts of abominable practices, things that we pursue, things that we say are good. Initially, we built them alongside of our places of worship. We said we can can follow after money and we can follow after all all the the abominable forms of, of pleasure that we're pursuing. We can do them all at the same time. And then gradually, of course, now the places of God's worship, they're disappearing from our society. Europe is, is far worse at this point in time than the United States. In the USA today, uh, they estimate that 23% of the population still goes to church on a weekly basis. In my homeland of Great Britain, it is less than 2% who attend the church even so much as once a year. It has become entirely irrelevant. But even as irrelevant as it is, there are still a few pockets of resistance who are standing firm on the gospel, standing firm on God's word and the political forces, the equivalents of the civil magistrate in Solomon's time, the, the kings and powers that be are pushing the church as much as they can to get them to lower their final resistance to everything, every form of abominable pleasure that they can. I was appalled recently to uh, read a letter that was written by Penny Mordant, the conservative VP for Portsmouth uh, who chairs the Privy Council, a tremendously important person in the conservative wing. This is the, the Britain's right wing. They're you know, the people who had traditionally supported the church and so on. We're not talking about you know, labor and the left wing of, of Britain. And I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I was searching for a political example. I decided to go overseas in order not to get in trouble with American politics, so uh, in any event. But she wrote a letter to the Church of England, the Bishop's asking them to back same-sex marriage in critical talks this week, saying the church's current stance, they are pro-homosexual, but they are not yet actually marrying homosexuals within the, uh, within the church. She says it causes pain and trauma to LGBTQ plus people. You know, um, it, it's, uh, and I, I've gotta admit, it was Carl Truman who, who made this point. He said that one of the words that has been so utterly destroyed in the English language is the word trauma. Trauma used to be something that got you sent to the hospital because you we were about to bleed out, okay? Oh, it's a trauma patient. Now it's, I heard something I didn't, dis- I didn't agree with. And now I'm in a fetal position, hugging, you know, my, my what is it, my, my, my help, an- what do they call the, the animals? That, uh, my, my, my support animal. And, you know, rocking back and forth because you actually brought up a subject that I, I didn't like. Trauma has been so utterly, utterly downplayed within our, uh, within our society. But she wrote saying, I hope you will back reform, allowing parishes and clergy to conduct weddings for same-sex couples, or at the minimum, enable authorized blessings. This is the civil magistrate, this is politicians pressuring the church. And we're not, and as I said, this is this is the conservative politicians pressuring the church to allow for this to go on in their. In their settings, she went on to to say that if they didn't, they would be guilty of the great, unforgivable, secular sin of institutional homophobia. This is what happens, brothers and sisters, when a nation abandons the word of God and effectively abandons God. But what have been the political results of this abandoning God in Europe? Well, I have to tell you, they have not been good. Uh, They have no energy they 're running out of food prices I mean if you think the price of eggs in, in you know down at food line are bad today, you should go to England and see how much they 're ch- charging for dairy products at this point in time. Nations over there are being torn apart as they attempt to close down uh, close down farms and the, and the craziness that 's going on. We have you know all of these leaders gathering together, promising people that if they worship the earth and eat bugs that everybody will be happy forever, even though they own nothing and have to live in a pod. And we have people who dress like bond villains and sound like bond villains attempting to, to take over the world. And I mean, you've got a war in Ukraine that's tearing things apart. Ukraine used to be the breadbasket of Europe, and now food is not going out. Why? Why is all of this happening? Well, brothers and sisters, if, if you don't think that the Lord raised up Vladimir Putin and Klaus Schwab and all the other opponents that were destroying Europe, just as surely as he raised up Haydad and Rezon, I don't think we're reading the same book. I don't think we're understanding the same God. If you think this is all about chance, then you haven't learned the lesson of these verses. A people who abandon God bring his wrath down upon themselves. And that is exactly... And I speak this to you as a subject of His Majesty King Charles III, still technically, I could show you my English password, I won't bring it out, but what have we done? We have turned our back on God, we have embraced all of these abominable practices, and now we are being destroyed. There are political consequences, there are real world consequences to apostasy in nations. But it's so easy to say that about nations, isn't it? You know, because they're large conglomerations. I mean, we think of them perhaps as lines on a map or groups of people and so on. But what about us? What about us as individuals? Will we do well without God? If we apostatize, exactly, we will not. Will the Solomon plan of life work for us? that plan that's peddled so, so industriously within our society. We just need money. We just need pleasure. And if we follow these things, then we'll be happy. We can worship the idols and avoid the wrath of God. And if we speak of the wrath of God, everybody looks at us and, oh, no. My God is not a wrathful God. Your God isn't the God who rules the world and created the heavens and the earth. Your God's not true. Your God's an imaginary God just as sure as Molech was an imaginary God and Shemosh was an imaginary God. The God who created the heavens and the earth is not a God who blesses apostasy. No, there is a day when all men will be called before him where he will be the judge. Jay Packer put it this way. He said, there is no jury when we stand before him. It is his responsibility and his alone to question and cross-examine and detect lies and pierce through evasions and establish how matters really stand. When the Bible pictures God judging, it emphasizes his omniscience and wisdom as the searcher of hearts and the finder of facts. Nothing can escape him. We may fool men, but we cannot fool God. He knows us and judges us as we really are. Does that frighten you? <laughs> I often see that silly bumper sticker, no one can judge me but God. And you're like, that should terrify you, dude. <laughs> <laughs> if I judge you, well, you know, I'll give you a bad look or something like that. Yeah, you much. <laughs> when the Lord God of glory judges you on judgment day and in that final pass-fail quiz, heaven or hell, it goes against you. That should terrify you. It should convict you. There have been many, many examples in, in history of men who have raged against God, who have gone against God, and yet God has ended up convicting them of their sins. I remember reading about one man who went he was, uh, he was planning on shooting George Whitfield, the evangelist, and he had his pistol in his pocket, and he went to hear him, and Whitfield was preaching a sermon on sin. And he suddenly realized, that's me he's describing. Those are my sins he's describing. That's the God of the universe he's describing. That's Judgment Day he's describing. And instead of shooting him, he ended up being converted. I remember reading another one about a, uh, it was actually, um, it took place in Africa. His name was Lungu. Or, in any event, he went to hear an evangelist. And the man kept, uh, he was planning actually on blowing up the audience as well. And uh, the the preacher kept pointing and saying, and you've committed this sin, and he would name it, and this sin, and you've named it. And eventually, the man was was struck to the core. He was convicted. And every time the evangelist pointed, he was trying to dodge the the (laughs) finger, you know. But he realized, "I, I have no hope. I have no hope. I am that sinner that he's describing. I have done these things. Well, what hope do we have? The answer is Christ. Repentance. The same God who saved David by the work of his own descendant, great David's greater son, Jesus Christ, remains available to all who will come to him with a repentant heart. Because I have to tell you, we may not, I mean, some of you may be sitting there, well, I don't have a thousand wives. Uh, You can check. You know, look it up. Uh, Got one. And, you know, I do okay, but I don't have, you know, forests of gold or anything like that. And yet, can you honestly say you're not guilty of idolatry? Can any of you honestly say, those who are at least reaching adult age, that you're not guilty of sexual sin? That you have not gone against the will of God? What did we What did we confess? Didn't we start out confessing that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us? But it doesn't end there, does it? It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How? Well, through the work of Jesus Christ. Paul, you remember, was a great sinner. He had persecuted the church. He had thought he was serving God, but in fact he was afflicting God and afflicting God's people. And yet he was able to write to Gentiles who had literally been worshipping idols and following them. He was able to say this, Therefore remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world." But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ is what cleanses us from all iniquity. The blood of Christ is our only hope when we stand before the throne. If we stand clothed, in his righteousness, having been cleansed in his blood, then when God looks at us, it will not be as an angry judge judging us by our works, but it will be as a father looking and seeing us in Christ and judging us by his merit and his work. That is what we so desperately need. That's what our nation so desperately needs. We can try to vote better. Perhaps we should vote better. Yes, that'd be great. But that will not save us. Economic revival will not save us. A stronger military will not save us. What will save us is justification by faith alone in Christ alone. And a return once again to the preaching of his word and to God's standard. Merely grumbling or any other solution we can come up with will not be enough. We need reformation. We need the Holy Spirit. We need God's word. And most importantly, we need God's son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you preaching him to your neighbors? Is he the center of your life? Or have you allowed other things to take control of your heart? Bigger and bigger portions of it. Things perhaps other people don't know about, but you know about it. I want to leave you with a word. It's actually from J.C. Ryle. Um, I erroneously... I've been quoting Packer a lot, so I put Packer on your Sabbath meditation. But let's, let's finish with the Sabbath meditation about the kind of people that we need to be. And men, particularly, read, read this with open eyes. We read there, a zealous man in religion is preeminently a man of one thing. It is not enough to say that he is earnest, hardy, uncompromising, thoroughgoing, wholehearted, fervent in spirit. He only sees one thing. He cares for one thing. He lives for one thing. He is swallowed up in one thing, and that one thing is to please God. Whether he lives or whether he dies, whether he has health or whether he has sickness, whether he is rich or whether he is poor, whether he pleases man or whether he gives offense, whether he is thought wise or whether he is thought foolish, whether he gets blame or whether he gets praise, whether he gets honor or whether he gets shame, for all this the zealous man cares nothing at all. He burns for one thing, and that one thing is to please God. And to advance God's glory. Solomon lost sight of that. Have you lost sight of that? If you have, repent, return, accept the restoration that God offers to you this very day. Set your eyes upon Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. Run the race with vigor, looking to Him. You'll have nothing to fear if you do. He loves to receive sinners. He loves to restore them. He is the father who takes in the prodigal who comes back from the far country. Run to him. Go to him and know the forgiveness that he alone can give you. Let's go before him. God, our father, Lord, there's not one person in this room who has not sinned against your holy law. There is not one person who can justify themselves by their own righteousness We have all fallen far short of your standard, but we thank you that you sent Jesus Christ into the world to be the propitiation for our sins, to offer us forgiveness we could never have by ourselves. So I pray that everyone listening to me will throw themselves upon the mercy of Christ, confess their sins, and Lord, know that forgiveness you can give. Lord, help us to truly repent, and we pray for our nation. We would be foolish not to. We pray for kings and all who are in authority. We pray, O Lord, that you would cause them Uh, Lord, as Tyndale prayed, even as he was being put to death at the stake, God, open the eyes of the King of England, so we pray. God, open the eyes of our political leaders before it's too late. Lord, allow them to see what a mess they've made by following their own fallen hearts and help us once again as a people to be restored to that, that basis of following you, listening to your word and accepting your gracious salvation. Lord, we pray these things.